0: People were absolutely in love with the COVID operating procedure, working from home, couldn't have gotten better than that. These are people that may be a little more introverted. Meanwhile, the extroverts were completely you know, shriveling on the vine. And now that we're knock on what emerging from COVID, you're seeing an opportunity to connect face to face. And I think that particularly those people that felt like they were cooped up craving that social interaction, my experience is they are jumping on any opportunity to do things face-to-face. Hi,
1: friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Justin Schreiber. Justin is the Chief Marketing Officer at People.ai. Is also the host of his own podcast titled The Legends of Sales and Marketing. In our conversation, Justin and I talk about a playbook for sales leaders that he and his team put together. It's all about managing sales in this rapidly evolving sales environment that we're in. Now, before we get to that, we also talk about his podcast. You know, Make sure you check that out because there's a very interesting guest on it. And then after we talk about that, we then dig into the six plays for sales leaders in the playbook I mentioned before. We get into Justin and I get into why sales leaders need to invest more in deepening their understanding of how each of their sellers is performing. I mean, it's only with that understanding, and people listen to the show know I talk a lot about the difference between just knowing and understanding, but it's only with that understanding that a leader can deliver the right coaching that will make a difference for that seller. we also dive into how sales leaders can better use data to truly analyze the potential of their sellers. And we talk about this idea as their way to use data to identify the most relevant potential. You know, like was described in the book Moneyball, talking about Billy Bean, who was the general manager of the Oakland A's. And how we use non-traditional metrics to identify talent for his team. So we get into all of that and much, much more. But before we get to Justin, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. Also, give us your feedback on how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Justin, welcome to the show.
0: Andy, it's great to be here.
1: Good to have you back. (laughs) And we're laughing. The inside joke. We start the show with an inside joke that only you and I know, which is that we actually tried to do this interview a couple weeks ago, and uh, yeah, the internet was not cooperating.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I found myself on the road more in the past couple weeks than I have in the past year and a half. I think you caught me in a hotel room a few weeks ago, and Marriott was just not delivering the goods from a Wi-Fi perspective.
1: I hope you got a refund on that daily fee.
0: (laughs) It was free. I guess you get what you pay for.
1: (laughs) That's right. Okay, maybe you should have paid for the upgrade fee. So Yeah, um, yeah, so nice to have you. And where are we finding you today? You're on the road again.
0: Well, I'm actually in San Francisco today. Okay. Yeah. All
1: right. Not too bad. Um, Well, tell us a little bit about you. So before we jump into it, um, tell us what you do.
0: Well, I uh, am having a great time right now as the CMO at Mm People.ai, where an artificial intelligence company that captures business activity from systems like email and calendar and automatically populates CRM with it. And then the other thing that we do is we translate all that rich information into the world's best Account and opportunity management solutions. The World's say. best. The world's best. <laughs> I wouldn't be a marketer if I didn't if I didn't attach some grandiose uh, descriptor to the front of what we do. Yeah. Floating. So before that, I was at uh, I was at LinkedIn for a while. Uh, done some startups, Oracle, Siebel, and uh, started off my career in management consulting. Believe it or not. Well, you got to start somewhere, right? Got to start somewhere. So,
1: but you ran sales teams at Oracle. I did. Right. Yeah, so I, how does how does a product marketing guy end up running sales teams?
0: Well, I started off building products back at Siebel. We got acquired by Oracle obviously. Yeah. And the sales team started pulling me in saying, can you explain all this stuff that you're building to my customers? So I, I would get out there and tell them what we did and figure out how that intersected with their problems. Found out that I really enjoyed it. What I really loved about being on the sales side is that whenever anything, whenever the customer complained about the product, I could say, you know, I know the product guys personally, and it makes total sense why this product is so screwed up. <laughs> so that was always that was always the line I went with. But right. it, in all seriousness, I really enjoyed taking technical subject matter and explaining it in a way that resonated. I think that went back to my consulting days and just mm-hmm. watching the way partners at management consulting firms sold. And I right. kind of took a page out of their playbook.
1: Well, yeah. So explain that. So what did they do that was so skillful?
0: Well, you know, as a, I was a business analyst at the time, so my job was basically to run the numbers and build the spreadsheets. And what I realized is the partners had a very different skill set. They obviously were were very steeped in in the data, but they understood uh, the key business issues that their clients were facing, and they knew how to engage as a peer with those individuals to sometimes surface problems that their Mm -hmm. clients didn't even know about, but then to have a very uh, strategic conversation with those folks and to bring forward solutions. And so I went away realizing that that's kind of the highest form of selling, is that when you're just really sitting down across the table talking about key problems, not really knowing what the solution is, Mm -hmm. but once you zero in on a problem that you can solve together, then bringing the solution to the table.
1: Yeah, well, I think the the key point there is not really knowing what the solution, not really knowing what the problem is, right? Yeah. That's that's the purpose of that high level discussion. Which, as you talked about, having discussion as a peer, I think becomes one of the hardest things for sellers to sort of level to get to. Let's say when they start their careers is, yeah, how do I, how do I stop being sort of a supplicant that feels like I'm begging somebody for something where I'm going in as a peer, right? they're a business person, I'm a business person, and having a discussion about problems and ways we might potentially help them.
0: One of, the, one of the tactics that I saw being used a lot by the partners is they would often say, we don't do that, or hey, you should talk to so-and-so about that. And in a way, that gained a lot of credibility mm-hmm. because uh, in the eyes of the client, they realize, hey, this person isn't here just to sell me services and in fact is willing to kind of uh, kick opportunities over to other folks and not be compensated at all. And I find that's a hard thing to do in sales. Obviously sales people are driven by commission, but when you can do that up front and say, hey, we don't do that, or you should talk to so-and-so, maybe even a competitor, mm-hmm. in the long run, it actually creates credibility and allows you to build a very lucrative relationship with those customers.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great Mindset that sellers need to be able to, <clears throat> excuse me, acquire, which is that yeah, I'm not the solution to everything, right?
0: I'm That's not right. selling,
1: I'm not selling a hammer and everybody's a nail. Um, yeah, I may be a hammer, but we're selling holes. and People have different needs for different types of holes.
0: You know, I actually uh, had a conversation recently with a, uh, actually the former president of London Fog Industries. So this is a very mm-hmm. non-tech industry, who also got his start in sales. And one of the things he shared with me, uh, his first job was as a buyer. So he literally did the job of the people he was interacting with. Right. On the sales side, he was talking to the buyers. And one of the things he would always do before he started to sell anything is he would go into the inventory room of these buyers and he would look at how much inventory they had. Right. Because he was a buyer, he immediately knew if they were overstocked or where what, what the situation right. was. And one of the things he would often do is come out and say, hey, I'm not going to sell you anything today. You have too much inventory. If I sell you more, you're not going to be happy. I'm not going to be happy. I'll come back and see you in six months. And right. guess what they did six months later when he came back? Always sure. got an order.
1: Yeah. No, I found that was always a. a I want to call it a technique because it's not really a technique. Because you got to be sincere about it, and you have to have that mindset. But when you can make those suggestions to somebody that you're not the right fit, there's you know, if they're looking for this is the most if. Yeah, you know, A is the most important thing for them to achieve, and you only do B. Then, yeah, there'll be another day, another time, another opportunity. Recommend A.
0: Yep.
1: But to your point earlier, that's that seems to be so hard for so many sellers to be able to do. You know, you said because of commission. So I guess <laughs> I was thinking about this over the weekend. Is like, yeah, why do we still pay commission? Why do we pay salespeople on a Piecework basis, right? Now, I worked in a factory as a kid. I worked uh, as a union job as meat processing plant, and we had piecework incentives, meaning that if I performed at a certain quality at a certain rate, um, I got a bonus. Why? Why do we still continue to insist that that's the right model for salespeople?
0: Well, I think part of it is that incentive or compensation, direct compensation, gets immediate re- immediate results. And unfortunately, I think that we live in an environment where short-term gains, fast gains are incredibly important. You look at the nature of the stock market today that rewards based on uh, beating earnings um, quarter over quarter. And then even uh, pre-IPO companies, the name of the game is to get as big as you can, as fast as you can to get that post-money valuation that makes people pay attention. The whole, the whole system, I think, is engineered around short-term gains. And I, I think that, you know, it's always been the case that you need to deliver results, but particularly in the last decade or so, the window um, over which we're being evaluated has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter, which may correspond to a, a bigger societal trend. And I think as a result of that, particularly in software, um, you're creating incentives that reinforce that behavior.
1: Agree, hundred percent. But so let's take it outside the realm of software, because yeah, yes, software is eating the world and eating in terms of Andreasen, but it's not everything. Um, Yeah, just yeah, in general, right? It still seems. I mean, to your point about scaling companies, I've been companies that we scaled, went public. Actually, we didn't pay commission to sellers before we went. We went public. and we're trying to close big deals that would have an influence on valuation, on the you know perception of investors of the company. So I don't know they're necessarily tied, but it's just like we're, it's just I don't know. I just wonder why. How do we break this cycle? Because it's just it doesn't seem to be working to anybody's advantage. Certainly right now. I mean, you look at general sort of trends of performance of B two B sellers. You know, all the research reports, you know, CSO Insights and others say that you know, performance is dropping. You know, commission's not helping. So why do we still do it?
0: I think that we're getting smarter about the ability to determine the lifetime value of a customer. Mm-hmm. And companies are getting more savvy as well in terms of acknowledging the fact that it's much more beneficial to both parties involved if you can retain a customer over the long term. Um, I don't think our compensation necessarily has kept pace with that epiphany, but I think to the extent that we can build compensation systems that reward for long-term retention and expansion of customers versus for the short-term landing of a new logo, um, I I think you're going to see a much healthier environment.
1: Yeah. I mean, it would be one thing if Salesperson or the account manager were the sole point person, the sole person engaged in making this happen, and had, uh, you know, 100% of the outcome could be attributed to their efforts. But that's very, very rarely the case. It's always been very rarely the case, at least in selling anything with any sort of complexity. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on that. Just sort of the thought came up, but it's just like, yeah, because I was thinking about this weekend, it's just like, yeah, we we got to get over this because it's it's not serving anybody. It's serving a few people. that serve sort of the high end performers, but I would argue it's not serving the companies they work for. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a valid point.
1: All right, so I'll
0: rant on something else later.
1: Um, to, <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's my show. I can rant if I want to.
0: That's right. That's, that's right. right. Can't rant that's, on your own show. Where can you rant?
1: That's right. Well, speaking of shows, you've got your own podcast. You're the host of the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. And I guess I'm not a legend, because I've not been on the show yet.
0: Andy, it's only a matter of time.
1: Okay, Only well, a matter of time. All right. Maybe if I hold on to this career just a little bit longer, <laughs> I'll be invited. So well, tell, us, tell us about the podcast. Uh, how'd you, why'd you start it? What's sort of the mission of it?
0: Well, I can, I can thank COVID for why we started it. We, mm-hmm. about a year ago, were doing these CMO and CRO roundtables. Right. We'd get about 15 sales and marketing executives together, and we'd have a kind of a celebrity CMO or CRO facilitate. And the feedback we got was, discussions were great, but I want to know about that facilitator. How did they get where they were? Um, what, what's, what's their backstory? Mm-hmm. And that became the concept behind the podcast, which is every every person has a backstory. So during the podcast, we always start off by talking about some of those formative experiences that the CMOs and the CROs have had pre-professional life. What were they like as kids uh, when they went to school? And then we trace those threads through into the philosophy that they've espoused to run sales organizations and, and marketing organizations.
1: So what was that thread for you?
0: What was that thread for me? Well, um, I have a couple of I would say formative experiences in my life one was that I had dyslexia as a kid so there was always a battle to overcome that and I didn't realize it until I was uh, actually graduated from college no nobody sat me down and said hey you know you you've got this challenge here, really which may have which may have changed my decision to be an English major in college. <laughs> I love the stories. I love the literature so much, but um, it took me four times longer to read the yeah. stories than it did. And I just figured I was a slow reader somewhere along the line. I'd missed the lesson in speed reading. I, ironically, I made a run at speed reading classes several times it never stuck. Yeah, but I think. As a result of that, I developed a real tenacity and and an understanding that sometimes the things that you love—in my case, it was the literature—you got to work for it. And just as a kid, that was part of my reality, and I never really, I never really thought twice about that. So I think that was one hmm. one formative experience for me. The other, uh, I think I've always had the entrepreneurial gene. I started off, uh, my first job was actually a window washing business that I started. And it's not that I loved uh, washing windows per se, but I loved the marketing. Uh, Our business was called the painstakers. (laughs) And I did all the the flyers for it. And I did the door-to-door selling for it. I even had a database. I had an Atari 800XL. Nice. Going, going back away. Power machine. Power machine. But I built this database and I had this mailing list. And for me, what was fascinating is seeing how the marketing and the sales and the actual execution, the operations, they all came together. And so I think both of those experiences combined to kind of lay the, the foundation for what I'm doing today.
1: And so if you're reading, what are you reading these days?
0: Well, I just finished Hail Mary by Andy Weir, follow-up oh, okay. to The Martian. Right. Which I, I will say it was not as good as The Martian. So yeah, I like The Martian yeah. Yeah, The Martian was great. I love biographies. Just finished up uh, a biography on Winston Churchill. Hmm? Um, which, by, which who is wrote pretty which remarkable. one? Um, I cannot remember off the top of my head who the author of that was. It was a, uh, it was a weighty tome, though. It took me a while to get through that yeah. one.
1: Yeah, I read the Manchester series on him, but yeah.
0: He uh he's a fascinating character and and a great example of someone who uh um he was on top of the world, he was on the bottom of the mm. world uh yes. and yet just doggedly pursued what he thought was right. He wasn't yep. always right, but no, didn't matter. He still went after it.
1: Yeah, I mean, he he thought he had a mission, right? So, and
0: I think he did. I think he did. Yeah. The, the world has uh, a lot to thank him for.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, very interesting. Okay.
0: You know, actually, along those lines, um, Churchill had a strained relationship with his father. And I think yeah. throughout his life, felt like he needed to prove himself, even after his father had passed away. Mm-hmm. And kind of was always jousting with the ghost of his father. And I think to a large extent, that drove him to become the person and make the contribution that he did. It's fascinating. I think that that is an archetype that I see oftentimes in sales. I've had the chance to talk to many individuals, uh, particularly on the sales side who had a really uh, traumatic experience early in life where they were made to feel like they didn't measure up. Mm -hmm. And that experience plagued them and drove them for the rest of their life to prove to themselves and to other people. And, And it's, It's crazy. Today you you have these people that are running some of the most successful sales organizations in the world, and yet they'll still tell you every month I show up and I'm worried that my CEO is going to call me into his office and say, you know, we're we're going to terminate the relationship at this point because they're always battling that demon.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, (laughs) the influence of parents is pretty strong, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think in my case, you know, i my dad was a very successful business executive, but very sort of old school and did not understand. Because, yeah, I was coming of age in sort of earlier days of Silicon Valley and, uh, you know, moving quickly from job to job, company to company, sort of pioneering the whole Silicon Valley resume before, uh, sort of mainstream. And he had been one company for 36 years. Um yeah, just never, never got that right. I always felt like, unfortunately, I died young. But it was like, yeah, from made him understood that. But yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, there are certain experiences we all have. I think in sales, yeah, people make you feel less than. You know, at my first sales train class, first big company I worked for right out of school. They got back from sales training class, and the instructor sent a note to my boss, basically saying they thought I should be fired. I'd never make a good salesperson because I was, <laughs> and this is sort of a sign of the times, is I was too analytical. All right, at then, back then, they just wanted you to be sort of, uh, you know, hey, how you doing? Sort of the outgoing, hail fellow, well met type, and yeah, you know, if you questioned what they were doing, it just, I'm uh, thinking, well, there got to be a better way. No, but <laughs> that's not what they wanted. So, I've always remembered that guy, yeah. thinking. Yeah, why don't we fire then? I I kept thinking to myself, yeah, it could have been a very short career I had.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, um, I mean, you take blows like that, and it really, it really kind of exposes who you are as a person, um, and 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 that's that's one kind of motivation. The folks that are always trying to prove to themselves and to others that they measure up. I, I've actually seen a couple of different archetypes, though. Another is what I call the innovator, and these are folks that just live to invent mm-hmm. um, it's not so much that they're in sales because they're trying to prove anything to anybody they just they love to to create um, I talked to Hillary Coplan McAdams who ran sales at New Relic uh, she was one of the early sales executives at Oracle building mm-hmm. the inside sales model she was at Salesforce president of Salesforce for a while Hillary grew up in a home actually her dad was an inventor mm-hmm and she talks about crazy stories where she'd go into the bathroom and there'd be some apparatus hanging on the side of the toilet that her father had invented so that her mother could rinse out the, the diapers more easily. Right. And this was just not surprising to Hillary because she was used to being in a home where if, you, if it didn't exist, you invented it. So when she came to Oracle and Larry said, you have to, build, you have to sell databases, she said, well, the current approach isn't working. Let's figure out an inside sales model. let's figure out how to do proof of concepts out of India. Mm-hmm. And she just created all of these things. and for her, the the exhilaration of the job was coming up with something that didn't didn't exist before.
1: Well, I think that's sort of a thread for a lot of people that are top performers in sales. And yeah, you know, the question status quo, the rule breakers, if you will. And my feeling is that we're sort of going through a period where sort of the growth of technology notwithstanding, we're sort of not seeing enough innovation coming out of sales. That, you know, for all the talk about modern sales, to me, you know, you look at what's beneath the hood and it's like, well, shit, this is the same sales process that we've been executing for 40, 50 years. We just put a veneer of technology on it. I mean, I don't know what's interesting your perspective on that, because I feel like Innovation and in sales are sort of being squashed.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I was having an interesting conversation with Mark Whalen. He's the this, this CRO over at Box. Mm-hmm. And he said, You know, when I got my start in my career, um, people kind of looked down on sales. Sales was a job that people did if they couldn't become mm-hmm. a lawyer or a doctor. And uh, it was a necessary evil. But when you went to that dinner party that your parents invited you to with their friends, They didn't really want you telling their friends that you got a job in sales.
1: Yeah, no, I I remember those days, yes.
0: But he said what's remarkable, he feels like there's been a renaissance of sales today where um, sales is um, an accredited profession. Um, Example he uses, you go to Harvard Business School now, and they actually teach courses on how to sell. And um, they're recruiting some of the best students out of the best universities and bringing them directly, companies are bringing them into sales. Why are they doing that? Because the level of selling today requires uh, an agility, a mental agility and ability to understand these complex business problems in a way that perhaps folks didn't before kind of gets into this consulting sale. And so it's not always like that, but I do, I do, I do agree with the fact that, um, Today, there's an opportunity to sell um, a prestigious opportunity. It's respected. And it, there's, a, there's an intellectual rigor associated with it that's stimulating some of the brightest minds out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, my contention would be those are the people that were doing it anyway, sort of the strata at the top. But that in general, sort of the way sales is practiced today, certainly in the softer world, inside sales, in the hands of many Sales leaders, it's sort of least common denominator driven, dumbed down, and you see it in the the surveys from buyers that said, "Look, you know, the buying experience is is not good, and you know, eighty percent of c level uh, buyers say, you know, we get no value whatsoever from our interactions with sellers." It seems like we have this huge opportunity in this gap to say, "Yeah, let's let's this is a." more rigorous game, right? We need to get more people in here who can operate at that level, but we also need to be able to support them to be able to operate there.
0: Yeah, I think that's also a reflection of the way people want to buy today. I think folks are much more comfortable researching on their own, gathering information, formulating their own hypotheses. Um, it's common knowledge now that they're 70% of the way through the buying journey well, before the salesperson <laughs> even enters.
1: Well, let's let's talk about that, right? Because that, that's one of my one of my great bugaboos <laughs> is how do we measure that, and what does what does that mean? And, and not to be contentious here, but I, I just I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago with another guest I'd talked to. Is you know we use these these numbers, but I don't think we really. And I've used it myself, right? I one of I wrote about it in my first book, but then uh, time's passed, I'm sitting there thinking. Yeah, what's that really mean, right? What's that really mean? Does somebody, you know, how do we measure whether someone's seventy percent of the way through a process based on a series of steps? And really, how does that correlate to if we said there's a decision process in the mind of you know n number of stakeholders? What percentage are each of them through their decision process, and can we really even know that?
0: Well, I think uh, the way I define that is there are definitely gates that you need to pass through as you sell or as you buy. Gate number one is just trying to formulate um, an understanding of the value that a particular purchase is going to create. And then from there, the criteria that you're going to use in order to make a selection. After that, you got to put together the list of vendors that you're going to bring in and then evaluate the specific solutions that they offer um, vis a vis your requirements. So I think what's interesting now is in terms of understanding the value, there's so much information available today. Online that allows you to determine what are you really going to get from that purchase? Um, Number two, who are the vendors that are out there and, you know, literally pulling down everything from a magic quadrant to um, G2 reviews, you can get a pretty good sense for strengths and weaknesses of vendors before Mm -hmm. they even come to the table. So I think whereas before when that information wasn't available, you were dependent from cradle to grave on a salesperson to walk you through that process. Um, In many cases, and I found this to be the case when I was selling directly as well, you'll walk into a meeting and you'll have a highly educated customer that already knows what your strengths and weaknesses are and dives into um, a conversation that, that may be a couple layers Lower than you would expect it to be, just in terms of of their level of education. So you know, is it seventy percent of the way through, fifty percent? I don't know. But the point is, certainly, um, the salesperson now has to acknowledge the fact that they are, they're dealing with a much more educated buyer and someone that's got much higher expectations.
1: Well, I think they certainly do for the buying experience. Yeah, I and mean, I think we're we're not meeting that challenge as sellers mm-hmm. by and large these days.
0: Yeah. I think that's
1: a part that that sellers miss. And I think this is is sort of a broader mindset in sales, which is when we use a statistic like that, we assume I think to too large a degree that the buyer really understands the problem they're trying to solve. And and I think we put too much credence in the fact, just because they can gather information, that they really understand what it is they need to do or what they could do or what the opportunities or potentials are. And I think that's that's really the opportunity for the consultative seller, the trusted advisor, to be able to help the buyer first and foremost define what it is they're trying to do, right? What is the thing that's most important to them to be able to achieve? And I, I think this is again, I think this is a big issue in sales because we assume the buyer knows that because we're we're sort of operating. Yeah, they've got they've looked at G two, they've looked at all the resources available online, uh, they have all this information, but they don't really understand anything. Or at least not to the extent that, that we want to give them the credit for. And I think those sellers who understand, who know, let's say, that this, there's this gap between knowing and understanding and address it, they're the ones that uh, come out on top.
0: Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a fair point, that there is a difference between digesting information and understanding and applying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, maybe that's where maybe that's where sellers have fallen short in kind of the next frontier is to be able to acknowledge that reality and, and know how to address it in a skillful way.
1: I think it's always been the case. I don't think this is a new problem. I'm not implying that. I think this has just been a problem that we haven't addressed in sales. Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually it's become exacerbated by the ready access to information. Um, so well, anyway, all right. So another thing I wanted to talk to you while we still had time is and you and I started touching this before uh, before we started recording is because you're talking about you're out visiting clients and sort of saying the value they're seeing, you think they see and sort of meeting you face to face. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit. So um, what's your thoughts? What's going to happen relative to face to face selling?
0: Well, I think that you've got, you got a, a diversity of people with different dispositions. Uh, Some people were absolutely in love with the COVID uh, operating procedure, working from home, couldn't have gotten better than that. These are people that may be a little more introverted. Uh, Meanwhile, the extroverts were completely shriveling on the vine. Um, And now that we're, knock on what emerging from COVID, um, you're seeing an opportunity to connect face-to-face. And I think that particularly those people that felt like they were cooped up, uh, craving that, that social interaction, my experience is they are jumping on any opportunity to do things face-to-face. The buyers. Um, the, bu- the buyers are. Yeah. And, and I see it from a marketing perspective. The events that we were running during COVID, virtual seminars, um, these CMO roundtables, CRO roundtables that I described, very popular. Those hit a wall back yeah. in April of this year. People just had no more appetite to jump on that. Right. Simultaneously, our field events, um, getting together, happy things as simple as a happy hour, um, through the roof attendance and uh, attendance and interest in that. And now, as I'm on the road talking to customers, um, there is a an acknowledgement that you can do things face to face that you just can't do in person or or, or online.
1: Well. Acknowledgement by who? Because this is an important point because believe me, and you probably read this too, and there's a world of quote unquote using air quotes experts out there that have come out in the last year and just said, yeah, face to face selling's dead. Yeah, you can do anything you want, you could do face to face, you can do online now and do virtually remotely. Is that really the case?
0: I think for certain kinds of sales it is, particularly the transactional sure. sales. Complex sales, big ticket items, um, I think it's going to be a hybrid. Absolutely, virtually, you can transmit a lot of information and even to some extent build relationships. But in order to make these large purchasing decisions, there's a, there's a, a committee involved. You need a champion that's willing to go to bat. Um, champions are formed not just by as you, you know, we were talking about before uh, understanding and digesting the information. A champion needs to feel like if I put my my name on the line here mm. and potentially put my career at risk, um, the, these these folks are are going to have my back, and that can't always be done virtually. It it, it comes sitting down together, having those serendipitous. Um, ad hoc conversations where things just come up and, and you start to build a rapport and really understand what people are made of.
1: Well, I think to your point, it's a matter of degree, right? I mean, you can, you can build connections, you can build relationships virtually. I mean, I, gosh, 30 plus years ago, when I was selling large, complex stuff to customers all around the world, yeah, I would only go visit them once sometime for multi million dollar deals. We are doing the rest. Virtually, as I like to say, I mean, people made such a big deal about virtual selling in the last year, and I'm like, you remember when virtual selling got started? Oh yeah, when Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. That's when virtual selling got started. Um, yeah, you know, we've been the hybrid models existed forever. I think the point you made was just sort of the which I want to amplify. It's just it's a matter of degree, and this existed mm-hmm. before COVID. I remember speaking at a uh, enterprise sales forum meeting somewhere, so enterprise sellers, and, and I asked the question, I said, you know, who, if you're, let's say, your you know, lifetime contract, lifetime customer value is over $200,000, you know, who would go visit the customer to close the deal? And almost no one raised their hand. And that's why I kept sort of ratcheting the dollar value, you know, to see when people would sort of the, uh, the barrier for wanting to get on a plane and go see somebody. And I was just like, yeah, $300,000. I'd, I'd spend $1,000 to get on an airplane to go close that deal, and I would beat you every time if I was there face-to-face. It's because it's a matter of degree, right? You might get 90% of the way there, but if you can take it 93%, 95% of the way there by going face-to-face,
0: do it. Yeah, I think that also applies to internal meetings as well and, and yeah. relationships. I've noticed that on my team, we can be incredibly efficient by jumping on a Zoom call and, and going through issues. But that solidarity, the esprit de corps that comes when you've had a, a long day and you just go out and grab some dinner together, mm-hmm. that doesn't exist virtually. And I don't know what the value of that is, but I can tell you that um, when you've got a team that's kind of bonded and, and spent some, some quality time together, the next time that big deliverable hits and people need to burn the midnight oil yeah. and really need to come together, if they've been together – In person, spending time building relationships, the outcome is pretty different than if it's just been all over Zoom.
1: Right. So now I get to indulge in my sports stories. So, because you opened the door to it. So, I'm a big soccer fan, uh, professional soccer. And I was just reading an article this morning about this club called Brentford that just got promoted from the second level of English soccer to the Premier League. A big thing, right? And Brentford's well known because they they sort of use analytics to a degree that a lot of the clubs don't mm. uh, in terms of analyzing players and and so on and and the the play of the game, but they're having an interview with their c e o that I was reading this morning, and he said yeah we are we are you know perhaps." at the leading edge of using analytics and so on. But let me tell you the the key to our success last year in winning promotion to the Premier League. He said is our togetherness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said that first and foremost, we bonded as a team. Just the word used, we bonded as a team. We pulled for each other. Everybody pulled their weight. When the next person needed to, you know, somebody got injured, the next man up, stepped in, filled the role. Everybody did their job. So yeah, you know we we want to ascribe so much value to the analytics, and there is tremendous value, but it's still a people-driven activity that we're doing. And to your point, is being together, pulling together, being bonded, makes a difference.
0: I think I think the the thing that's the epiphany I've had is that there is a, a level of deliberateness. That exists when we get together today. That may not have existed before because maybe we took hmm. these face-to-face interactions for granted. Right? You know, when things aren't deliberate, you you get people, um, and some people like this, some people don't. You drop in, you, you talk to people, um, you waste a lot of time. Um, when you're at an offsite and you've got three days, and you know you're not going to see these people for a while. You focus on what matters, both from a professional perspective and a team development perspective, and um, so I find that when I do have the opportunity to meet with someone in person, I'm very thoughtful about well, what do I want to get out of this, mm-hmm. and and how do I want to spend my time, and I think as a result of that, the quality of the interactions has increased.
1: Yeah, I I would agree. I think that's that's a great model, but let's say you're teams back in the office and you know, you're know you doing the Tom Peters management by walking around thing. Mm-hmm. I presume you found value in that too though, didn't you?
0: I found value in that, but um, on the flip side, you have to have everybody in the office. We've hired some amazing sure. talent and um, it just wasn't possible to get all of those people in the office. And, and honestly, there's some advantages from a cost perspective to not, not having everybody in a major metropolitan area. True. Sure. Um, So I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of speculation about where we're going to land when all of this thing is behind us. The the pendulum now has swung in both extremes, and it'll land somewhere in the middle. But certainly, the remote will join the in-person, and we'll figure out how to make it work. But they're now very much a part of our lives.
1: Yeah. Well, you're already seeing people backtrack on some of the dire predictions that came out in 2020. The Bay Area is dead. Uh, New York City's dead, uh, dying. No one's going there. And now New York Times last week, article, oh, well, maybe not so fast on the Bay Area. People are coming yeah. back. Uh, New York City, ah, oh, well, yeah, you know, my stepdaughter and her husband are trying to buy a, an apartment in New York City. And, you know, the prices are being bid up 30% mm-hmm. or more um, on every deal. They still haven't been able to buy one. Um, yeah, We'll be back in the middle somewhere. It's never. Yeah, I think so. It's never as dire as, as people want to say. Um, so, all right. Well, we're sort of running out of time, and I had a load of questions I ask you, and we'll we'll come back and we'll ask those questions on another time. So, if people want to connect with you, one that hear your podcast, tell them how they can listen to your podcast.
0: Well, Legends of Sales and Marketing is available wherever you get your podcast: uh, Apple, Spotify. We've also got a great microsite. It's called people.ai forward slash legends. And you can get all the, the audio there, but we also take some time to put a bio together on each person. So if you're the kind of person that likes to consume the written word, as mm-hmm. they say, um, we've got some, some interesting features there as well. And then I'm always available on LinkedIn. Um, shoot me a note and happy to, happy to connect that way as well. Well, great.
1: Well, Justin, thank you very much for joining me
0: been a pleasure, Andy. I've enjoyed it.
1: Look forward to talking again. Great. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Justin Schreiber, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help, and thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.